Lion Trust are the proud partner of the Athletics in the Boardroom podcast. Lion Trust have been an independent asset manager since 1995. Right now, they're giving you a chance to win a £1,000 shopping voucher to spend at John Lewis. All you need to do is visit liontrust.co.uk forward slash The Athletic to find out more. Head towards your financial goals with Lion Trust. Now, this competition is only open to UK residents and full terms and conditions are available on the Lion Trust website. The Athletic. Hello, it's Jackie Oatley here, host of The Athletic's In The Boardroom podcast. I've been speaking to influential people who operate at senior levels in football about their experiences of working in the game. In this episode, we're speaking to Paul Barber, Chief Executive and Deputy Chairman of Brighton and Hove Albion Football Club. Paul's career in football administration has also seen him work for the English FA, Tottenham Hotspur and Canadian MLS side Vancouver Whitecaps. Paul's been at Brighton for nearly a decade and has helped steer the Seagulls from the Championship to the Premier League in that time. As well as his success with Brighton, we discussed the fallout of the European Super League debacle, plus the interim findings of the fan-led review into football governance, amongst many other things. I started by asking Paul what his duties as Chief Executive and Deputy Chairman at Brighton actually entail. Yeah, so my day-to-day role really is the overall sort of running of of the club. So my main sort of direct reports would would include Dan Ashworth as as our technical director, all of the sort of executive staff in all of the different areas of the club, whether it's ticketing, marketing, finance, HR, all the usual functions. And then externally interfacing with the media, local authority, government, Premier League, Football Association, sponsors. That's a lot of interacting, isn't it? I mean, how do you manage the workload? Well, I've got an excellent um, assistant who organises the diary very, very efficiently and very well. And and I try and make myself as accessible as I can to supporters as, as well as to all the other different stakeholders that we have in the club. But it's a passion for me, Jackie. It's something that I, you know, I, I wasn't good enough to play professional football. I wasn't good enough to coach at a professional level. And I've been very fortunate to find my way into administrating in the game, which I love doing. And, and you know, I still have the same passion and love for football that I had when I was a small kid. So, you know, to be honest, it doesn't feel like a job a lot of the time. It's a privilege to, to do it. And what are the parts of the job that you relish, that you really, really enjoy getting involved with? And which are the bits where you think, oh... I despise that bit, but I've just got to do it. There must be plenty of bones, um, right? Yeah, but it varies. You know, match days are fantastic. You know, we exist for match days. We exist to put on a game of football and entertain people in a packed stadium and ideally in front of live TV cameras and all of the things that go around a Premier League football match. And, and like any job, there's always parts of it that you perhaps enjoy less. And, and there's a lot of administration, a lot of paperwork, looking at numbers, a lot of assessing what we should do with certain things in certain ways. and that can involve anything from should we invest in this part of the football club or should we invest in that part and how are we going to stop losing so much money there and how can we perhaps generate more revenue in another place. So there's lots of sort of nitty gritty details that you have to get into a lot of the time. But actually the joy of football and the joy of, of running a football club is is that you get involved in lots of different things and you never get a chance really to get bored or, or dissatisfied with any one one thing because there's so many other things that you have to focus on on any given day or week. Are you a good delegator? 
Have to be. I mean, the one thing that, that football clubs are very much about is, is teamwork. And that's on the field as well as off the field. And off the field, teamwork is even more critical because there's absolutely no way at this level of the game with this size of club. And relatively speaking, we're a, a small to medium sized Premier League club. You know, there are a lot bigger clubs out there than this. It would be impossible for one person or even a small group of people to, to to deliver everything that goes into running a football club. So I, I must delegate, I have to delegate. I've got a really good executive team that, that work very closely with me. We've got staff at all levels of the club that are really passionate and committed to what they're doing. And we try and reflect the importance of those roles. However, relatively small some of the tasks may feel at times or seem to, to some of the people involved, it's just as important that our staff in the car parks was efficient as the guys in finance or as efficient as the guys who are recruiting the players. Everyone has a role to play in a football club and, and they're all equally important as far as I'm concerned in delivering a, a great experience for the fans that, that visit us. It sounds as though time management is absolutely critical to you being able to do your job successfully. Is that something you've been naturally good at or is it something that you've learned over so many years of doing this type of job? No, I have had to learn. I've had to get better at it. I mean, sometimes it's easy to get carried away in, a, in any particular meeting, particularly if you're enjoying it or it's on, or an area of the club that you, you feel particularly passionate about. But actually getting the, the diary management right and, and making sure that you've got as much time as you need for every individual part of the role is really important. And I think, you know, one of the things I've learned over the years is, is to respect other people's time. You know, it's not acceptable for me to keep other people waiting or, or for other people's days to be disrupted just because a previous meeting that I've had has run on. So I've had to get better at that. I hate being late anyway, so it does help that I try and you know make sure that I'm as prompt and as, as courteous as I can be. But obviously in, in this job, sometimes events overtake you and, and you do get delayed. But uh, time management is certainly a very important part of how to deliver this job day to day. You've always come across as a really good communicator in the media, but is that something that's come naturally to you as well? Or again, is that something that you've had to learn over the years in terms of how to deal with people effectively? Well, actually, when I, if I go back to my sort of childhood, I was actually very shy at school and, and quite uh, introvert in many ways. And it was football that brought me out of myself. And, you know, I, I was a reasonably decent young footballer when I was a kid. That in itself brought me out of myself, gave me a bit more confidence to communicate, got me used to talking in front of small groups and then larger groups and then representing the club and the schools at different functions. So I've got a lot to thank football for beyond the love of the game. I had a particular skill in writing and communicating and and studied marketing and communications, which again gave me more confidence. And I think it's probably one of the most important attributes that a chief executive of any organisation can have, the ability to communicate is really, really critical. And whether that's influencing my own staff or leading my own team or communicating with media or communicating with sponsors or government or whoever it may be, the communication skills that I I developed at quite a young age have have always been there and stood me in good stead all the way through. Do you think the art of communication, which we deem so important to this type of job or to dealing with the media and the public and managing the staff that you manage, do you think perhaps that's overlooked by various bodies, not just in football, but generally speaking, is it seen as maybe secondary to what people have got on a piece of paper or what they've done with the career? I think very often it is, and wrongly, in my opinion. I think if you look at a lot of chief executives of major organisations, they often got a finance background or a legal background or a strictly sort of commercial background. And those professions are, are, all, are all good and, and people have worked hard to, to, to achieve in those professions, but not all of them necessarily 
require you to communicate as extensively as as this job demands and very often people from a marketing or communications background have been overlooked over the years for for many of the top jobs actually now i think perhaps that's changing i think people realize that communication skills are absolutely vital if you're going to lead any organization and i think in a football context the ability to communicate with lots of different people you know from the fans who are absolutely vital to the game at one end of the spectrum, right the way through to government at the other, and everything in between, including the media, including the Premier League and the FA. Communication is is simply what, what I spend most of my day doing. If I was to boil it down and to say, you know, what, what one thing, if I lost it, would actually make this job very, very difficult to do. It's actually that ability to communicate. Talking about the situation with the fans, I know you're somebody who does communicate with fans, whether it's by email or fans groups and and talking with them which can actually take the pressure off you can't it when things are maybe not going well on the pitch if the fans understand what you're trying to do and how you're trying to do it that can actually buy you a lot more respect and therefore time and ease that pressure but you look at plenty of other clubs who don't have that kind of relationship at board level with the fans organizations and with fans individually and sometimes there can be a build-up of mistrust would you go along with that definitely I go all the way back to the mid-70s when I first started going to football with with my dad if there were issues with the club or with tickets or just wanted to actually engage with the club in some way very often you you would write a letter as it was in those days and you would hear absolutely nothing back or you would try and call the club and there wasn't a department set up to receive a call from fans I think my early experiences of, of interacting with football clubs were pretty poor when I look back and these days I think we've all moved a, a long way from that when it doesn't happen then you do start to see a breakdown in trust between the fans and their club. And that really can lead to a lot of other problems. And our view here is that you know we're very open with what we're trying to achieve. We try and keep expectations reasonable because all of us as football fans can sometimes run away with our expectations. And we're all guilty of that. It's not just fans. It can be directors and, and staff sometimes too. When you're on a good run, you think anything's possible. When you're on a bad run, you think nothing's possible and you know somewhere in between is very often where you're at and we try and communicate that we try and deal with problems we try and get ahead of problems we try and explain if it's not going well why it's not going well or what our view is we hold a number of fans forums each year we try and make them as accessible as possible so some are in person more recently a lot have been online obviously but we also try and take them away from from Brighton and Hove we've got a lot of fans now in different parts of the south and southeast of England. So we try and get out onto the road and, and meet people face to face in different fans forums. And, you know, it's appreciated and sometimes they're difficult. Sometimes the questions are aggressive or hostile because things aren't going well. But most of the time, if you take the time to explain things, people will appreciate that and get a sense of perspective and you can manage expectations better that way. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, looking at your start to the season this year, you won four out of five games in the Premier League and you all received so much credit for that. But when you actually arrived back in May 2012, Brighton were in the Championship. How would you describe the club's setup back then? <laughs> well, we, we, you know, we were not that long, really, from the bad old days of 1997 when we were one game and one point from going out of existence, literally going out of the Football League. Mm. And when I arrived here sort of 15 years later, a lot of good people had done some amazing things to, first of all, stop the club going out of the league at that time, and almost certainly out of existence, then to, to, to rally to get the club to survive that awful period without a stadium and no training ground. 
and then to actually get the, the the club into its own home again back in Brighton at the American Express Community Stadium. And then since then, we've added the infrastructure of the training ground and more recently the women and girls facility within that training ground to sort of really show that the club has a not only a long-term plan to be sustainable for the future, but also to make sure there's opportunities for men and women and boys and girls. And in 2012, that was a, a very different club that I inherited then. A lot of work had been done, but there was still a hell of a lot more work to do. Again, over the last 10 years, it's been an incredible journey. Five years in the Championship, now five years in the Premier League. Having experienced Premier League before with Spurs and Major League Soccer with Vancouver, it was a whole new world to be competing in the Championship. It was really hard. One of the toughest leagues in, in, in the world to, to get out of. We managed to do it and we were determined that we'd do everything possible that we didn't go back there. As nice and as good as league as it is, you know, being in the Premier League was where we wanted this club to be. And uh, obviously so far we've managed to achieve that. Kyle has come right over to the touchline. Sonny Marks in midfield. Now this is a great ball forward towards Hamid. Will it fall to him? Back to Murray! Yes! Deflection! And that's it! One more step on the road to promotion. Attackers linking up, took a deflection, but Murray gets another. Oh, knock on off on the run again, he's got through, having another twist and turn, it's come back to March. March surely yes! through the goalkeeper's legs, and that surely is it, Sonny March makes it 2-0. Brighton take another step towards the Premier League. As we speak, you're ninth in the Premier League after a couple of late equalisers um, in one-all draws. But your last home game was a nil-nil draw at home to Leeds United. And of course, there was some booing from home supporters after that, which shocked a lot of neutrals looking from the outside in, bearing in mind the job that Graham Potter's done there. Were you shocked by that? Yes and no. Um, yes, because I think that Graham and the players deserve better, frankly, um, for the, not just the position we're in the Premier League, but the performances this season. In most games, we've been at least the equal of the side that we're playing against. And in many places, we, we, we've been better than the side we've been playing against, even if the win hasn't come. And I think most of our opponents would would, would sort of uh, agree with that. But not surprised for, for the reasons I said, is that, you know, unfortunately, we, we live in a world where instant gratification, you know, demands for instant success or... Um, winning every game, it, it's an expectation that a small section of, 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 I think, every fan base has these days. And, you know, bigger and more successful teams than us have been booed in, in more recent times. And I think it's, unfortunately, it's, it's become part of the game um, for whatever reason. I know that the vast majority of, of our fans are with us and what we're trying to do. They understand the journey. They understand that we're only playing for the ninth season in our entire 121-year history at top level you know, there's still a lot for us to learn at this level. And, and the fifth consecutive season is, is the best in, a, in our club's history. The majority understand how difficult this is and are prepared to be patient and understand that not every game in the Premier League is going to be won. And not every game in the Premier League do you get what you sometimes think you deserve. And if you've dominated a game, as we did against Leeds, but you still come out without a win... For some people, that's hard to fathom. Yeah, it's one of those things, Jackie, that, that sadly we have to just deal with and, and move on from. Yeah, and if you just take your chief exec's hat off for a second, and if you can give us the, the more human side of when that kind of thing happens, when you come away from the director's box and you go back inside, having just seen your side play really well, and you've heard fans booing, 
what is that like? I mean, were you shaking your head? Were you all talking about it in the director's box when you saw the manager? Were you? I mean, can you give us a little bit of honesty and insight there? Yeah, so I, I can imagine. Well, sometimes you want to scream, to be honest. Sometimes you, you do want to scream because you, you just feel like, you know, first of all, there's a, there's a, there are a group of human beings that have just given everything for, for 90, 95 minutes to not only succeed at the end of their working week, but also to please the tens of thousands that have turned up to watch them perform. And they are as acutely disappointed with not winning as the fans in the stand and the directors in the director's box and the sponsors in their sponsors' lounges. You know, they they feel it just as much, if not more. They've put an entire working week into preparing for the game and, and delivering what they hope will be a performance that leads to a win. So there's the human side of it from that point of view. You kind of feel for, for what for us are our colleagues. And none of us want to see our colleagues you know, going through any kind of suffering or abuse if it can be at all avoided. And then there's the sort of the fan in you that just wants to win because it's a competitive sport and you love the game and you, you turn up to win. You don't turn up to, to lose or, or draw. So you're disappointed at that level. But then again, perspective kicks in and you have to understand, we all have to understand, and, and that's including me, that you can't win every game in the Premier League. It's, it's not possible. It's not possible for Manchester City, Liverpool, Chelsea or any of the bigger clubs in the league, let alone for us. Um, but that doesn't mean to say that we can't be disappointed and, and, and sort of you know, share in that emotion. But I don't think, certainly in my 25 years working in professional football or 45 years in being involved in football at different levels, that booing anyone or any team or any individual has ever helped that individual or that team. It's a negative emotion that, that, that frankly doesn't need to be expressed, in my opinion. But everyone, unfortunately, or fortunately, whichever way you look at it in football, does have an opinion on the game. It's what makes the game great. It's what makes it the most talked about sport in the world. It's what makes it the biggest sport in the world. So everyone's got that opinion. doesn't mean to say that they're always right. And now you're enjoying life in the Premier League, having been promoted in 2017. But in three of the previous four seasons, you lost in the playoffs. Now, playoff failure is a painful thing for football supporters. <laughs> Super painful. Three times in four years, I can only imagine. But also being chief executive, that must be pretty painful too, bearing in mind you have the financial implications of that when you're trying to plan for the next season. And that's happened to you. And just try and talk us through, if you can, what the roller coaster ride is like, the highs and the lows, in terms of the financial planning and people management when that happens. Oh, it's, it's the worst feeling <laughs> I've ever experienced in football. I was lucky enough to, to work with the England team at a World Cup and losing in the quarterfinal of a World Cup was was bad enough. In fact, it was horrendous. But I think it's different when you're in the championship and you're trying to get to the Premier League because, first of all, the stakes are so high, not just financially, but in terms of the status and the growth of the club going forward. Secondly, you know just how many people have contributed such hard work to get you to even within the chance of, of the playoffs, that loan winning through and getting to the Premier League. And you also know how much the coaching staff and the players have put into a what is a 46-game season to, to get you into the playoffs. And then, of course, you, you've got to get through another three games to, to get to the Premier League at that point. We were fortunate in some ways, now I look back on it, that we, we never got to the final of the playoff and, and lost at that stage. I think that would have been even more painful than actually losing at, at semi-final stages. And, he, and on each occasion, we lost to good teams. We felt that we, we could have you know been promoted on each of those occasions. And of course, 
you know, we'd had the added disappointment the year before we were actually promoted of, of, of going into the last game of the 46-game season with a chance of going up automatically if we'd have beaten Middlesbrough at the Riverside Stadium. And, and we drew that day. Um, we felt we were at least the better team on the day and, and possibly could have won that game and gone up automatically. It didn't happen. We then went into the playoffs against Sheffield Wednesday, had a terrible first leg where we got four injuries, lost 2-0. We then came back to the Amex in the second leg and, and absolutely outplayed Sheffield Wednesday, you know, from the first minute to the last, but still only drew the game, went out of the playoffs. Playoffs are a wonderful thing for football and, and particularly for the EFL, but if you're on the wrong side of them, they are the most painful as well. Wallace, up moving up outside him. Wallace has eyes for goal! And he takes the way through. Oh, he has! And it's finished superbly! Kieran Lee's delight! Sheffield Wednesday's delight! At hiring Graham Potter has proved to be a very, very good decision in terms of what looks to be a bright long term future for the club. But when you had to say goodbye to Chris Hewton in May 2019, or you felt you should, how difficult was that, given he'd achieved promotion for you? Incredibly difficult, partly because I'd worked with Chris before at Spurs. Obviously, I'd seen him play during his time as, as a player with Spurs and sort of admired him for many, many years, both as a, an athlete, uh, as a coach and as an individual. I mean, Chris conducts himself so well at all times, no matter what the pressure, no matter what the the disappointment of, of a particular result or the success of a particular result. He was always the same calm, assured individual and, and decent person from, from top to bottom. So, you know, when it came to making that change, it was something that I know that Chairman thought long and hard about, that we discussed at length many, many times and, and you know, felt that we needed to make a change at that time for, for a couple of reasons. One, because we felt that with the group of players that we had, we could possibly do better. And secondly, you know, we wanted to try and evolve the style of football that we were playing and to be as entertaining as we could be. And every football club probably has to make these decisions at certain points. And it's never easy because you work so closely with the manager. He's such an important figurehead for the club. And when you're working with someone as decent and as talented as Chris, to make that decision is difficult, but then to communicate it is even harder. Trying to explain it and trying to justify it become very difficult. Typically, Chris was incredibly dignified about the whole thing. And, and you know, we still, where we can, when we when we bump into each other, have an opportunity to, to talk. And I hope that would continue way into the future. But these are the most difficult things I think about being in this job or running or owning a football club you have to make decisions on on individuals and, and sometimes then they're not decisions that are easy to take. And how would you describe where you are at the moment in terms of infrastructure of the club and what you're trying to build and we've seen these phenomenal new facilities that the women's side have for example? We've got everything now in place that, that we need to have in place to achieve our vision, which is to be a top 10 Premier League club on a consistent basis and to be a top four women's Super League club on a consistent basis. If we make it into the top 10 at the end of this season, that won't be the achievement of our vision because it will just simply be one season out of what we hope would be many at this level. And if we achieve a top four stage in the, in the WSL, it wouldn't be an achievement of vision there either. And where we've been really fortunate is that we've got a chairman that understands that in order to achieve visions like that, you've got to have the infrastructure to support that. You've got to have the budgets that can hire 
the best available talent for a club of our size and at our level, and of course, the coaching staff to go with it. But the infrastructure, you know, from the stadium, which is now a capacity of 32,000, through to the, the training ground, which is a world-class facility for men and women, boys and girls, is as good as it can be. And, you know, we're delighted with it. And we always talked about having a plan that involved infrastructure, the right people and the right policies, and then consistent high performance. And if you can get those three things right, and ideally in the right order, then you've got every chance of being whatever it is you want to be. And and, and the great thing about football is that every club will actually have its own definition of what success looks like. We're realistic enough to know that it would be very, very hard for us to compete head on with a Manchester City or a Liverpool or a Manchester United or a Chelsea every season. That's okay on a game-to-game basis, but are we going to be in and around the top three or four? Probably not. Are we able to push into the top 10? Probably and possibly. And so from that point of view, we know what the next level of our ambition is. And is a European place for the men's team a realistic prospect? Well, there's a lot of other clubs that want the same. So, <laughs> you know, it's, um, I think it's realistic in the sense that we have to have, if, if your ambition is to be in the top 10, then, you know, sometimes the difference between seventh as it is now and tenth is maybe a couple of points. And therefore, turning some of our current draws into wins or losses into draws could be that difference. So it's not unrealistic. But we're also sensible and pragmatic about how far we've come, how fast that has happened, what kind of competition that we've got all around us every day. I mean, if you look at you know, the Premier League now, Manchester United, Arsenal, Wolves are occupying sixth, seventh, eighth. Well, there are three big clubs there. So, you know, we're very, very realistic about, you know, what's possible to achieve. And, you know, even if you look currently directly below us, you've got Aston Villa and Leicester who have got incredible pedigrees the one thing you know tony and i have been really determined to do is that as we've progressed as a football club you know we don't forget where we've come from we don't forget the struggles that we had previously we don't forget the people that work to overcome those struggles and give us the opportunity to use the platform that was there to, to build the club for the future so optimistic definitely want to challenge definitely want to progress but at the same time realistic and in terms of the women's side we're all looking at what brighton are doing and really applauding where they've come from and where they are now, doing so well in the Super League this season under Hope Powell and and really building. And could you tell us what those conversations have been like behind the scenes over the years in terms of finding and allocating the finances, the resources and the infrastructure to build in the right way and to really challenge towards the upper echelons of the women's game, bearing in mind you're not in the top, top tier of men's Premier League clubs financially. No, I mean, um, we're not. And I can go all the way back more than 20 years to, to my time at the FA and Hope Powell was the England women's head coach. And Hope would regularly, uh, metaphorically, kick down my door at the FA's headquarters and demand more for the women's game. You know, she was or is a genuine pioneer for women's football in this country. And having to deal with some prejudice along the way and, and, and some behaviours that were not acceptable then and, and definitely are not acceptable now, you know, she did an incredible job for, for, for the England women's team and she's done an incredible job here as well. And she constantly demands more, frankly, whenever we think that we've delivered over and above what we can afford or what, what at the moment that the women's game, you know, may, may need. Hope is already on to the next thing. You know, opening the, the women and girls facility, we've now got a training environment where Hope can properly prepare 
uh, players. And here we are. We, we've won five of our first eight games in the Women's Super League. And, you know, we're sitting third. And again, we know there's a long way to go. We've got Manchester United and Manchester City and, and Tottenham and West Ham behind us at the moment. You know, these clubs have got big budgets for their women's teams now. And we know that they're going to be snapping very, very much at our heels over the next few games. But, you know, the women's game has only got one way to go, and that's upwards. It's going to get better. The quality of, of the football is going to get better. The professionalism of the athletes is going to get greater. We're going to see bigger crowds. We're going to see potentially bigger contracts from broadcasters and from sponsors. And we're still representing through our, our women and girls team 50% of our community. And we've got girls being inspired to play the game, to officiate in the game, become involved in the game as administrators. It's a fantastic opportunity for us to broaden and deepen and strengthen the breadth of talent right the way across the football industry by making sure that, that women and girls realise that there's a place for them. It's totally acceptable. It's totally normal. And it gives us, I think, an opportunity to improve in every way right the way across our sport. Now, Paul, your preaching is converted here, but there are lots of big clubs with bigger budgets who haven't supported their women's teams over the years and are still not doing what they should be doing. And perhaps some people think they are doing it and maybe they're not quite doing as much as they should be behind the scenes. So where does that commitment come from? Does it come from you? Because there's always a champion on the board, at least one champion on a board that really pushes the women's game for them to be able to progress, starting with Arsenal back in the late 80s. So is it you? Is it you that convinced Tony Bloom? Is he already on board with it? Are there plenty of people on the board who always felt that the women's game should be fully supported in the way they are now? Where's that come from? Because it takes funds. It, it takes it away from the men's side, as many clubs would say. It does. And at the moment, it does. And I think you do have to have a champion in any club for areas of the club that perhaps are, at the moment, sort of loss making. And, and you know, we, we can't beat about the bush here. Women's football for us and, and for, for most clubs, if not all clubs in the Women's Super League and across English football at the moment is a loss maker. But sometimes you have to absorb losses and find ways of covering those losses to do the right thing. And, you know, we think this is the right thing. We didn't need to spend a huge amount of time convincing the, the chairman that, that it was the right thing to support it. We did have some robust board debates because you're right, Jackie, that if you're losing, as we are, three, four million pounds a year from for, for competing in women's football at the highest level, that three or four million pounds a year could be diverted to, to Graham's squad and to, to other areas of the club that could ultimately make us more successful in the men's game. But we've got a huge amount of interest from women and girls in our community and our football club. And it's not just because they want to support the men's team. They expect us to do the right thing. So I think, you know, every football club, sooner or later, if they haven't done already, will will find a pressure not just from uh, within the game, but also from within their community to to support both men and women's football and boys and girls. And there's a lot of girls, young girls out there that want a pathway into the game. You know, they've seen what Alex Scott has achieved, for example, you know, having been a player and progressed to the great heights that she has as a broadcaster. You know, these are pathways that 25 years ago, many girls couldn't see, wouldn't be able to see but now are beginning to see and they like what they see. So we've got to provide an opportunity, I think, for those kids to be able to progress in the same way that their brothers can or they've seen their fathers progress. I mean, we've got young Ellie Brazil in our women's first team who watched her dad play professional football. And here she is now, you know, following in his footsteps and, and playing professional football as well. That's fantastic. It's, it's a great story. 
And there will be many others, I think, over the years to come, provided that, you know, clubs keep hold their nerve and, and keep pushing the opportunities for girls and women to play the game at the highest level. And you put your money where your mouth is in that regard, but also in terms of being a director of women in football. Why did you want to do that? Bearing in mind, it's another <laughs> another thing to add to your already packed diary. Um, well, again, I think first, I think it's the right thing to do um, from a professional point of view. You know, I've always had a an interest in the women's game right the way back to my my days at the FA when hope would would berate me for for, for you know not necessarily getting as much money for her side of the FA uh, as as um, she would have liked and since then I've, I've you know got two daughters of my own who both work in, in the professional game you know I think it's great that they've wanted to follow I suppose in a dad's footsteps but I've also been very aware that there are still some obstacles and some barriers out there that may stop them progressing and, and that again doesn't feel quite right to me I don't think there is anywhere near as many barriers or obstacles as there might have been in the past, but there are still some. I want to do a small, play a small part, do a small thing, and, and hopefully removing some of those barriers uh, and, and obstacles so that they have every opportunity. If they're good enough and they can go further in their careers in the game, then that's great. If they're not quite good enough, well, it will be because they're not quite good enough, not because there's a barrier stopping them from from being the best that they can be. So, yeah, I suppose it's a combination, Jackie, of a professional sort of interest and a, and a personal interest now. I didn't expect my two daughters to, to work in football. But when I look back, you know, they haven't really known anything different. So why wouldn't they want to be involved in the game? And, um, you know, from that point of view, I'm very proud of what they're doing. But equally, I'd love to see the same opportunities exist for girls and, and women, even if their fathers haven't had a background working in football. You know, I think it, it should be open to all and best people should progress as just as if they were young men coming into the game. And just explain what your daughters are doing in football. One works in, in the legal department of a Premier League club and the other one works in the marketing and media department of another Premier League club. So, uh, you know, they've, they've both followed their own sort of pathways, if you like, and um, both are determined to hopefully one day sort of get to, to higher levels. But, uh, you know, they've got a long way ahead of them and a lot of pain and anguish along the way, I'm sure, uh, if they want to work in club football. But um, the fact that they're in and the fact that there are opportunities and the fact that they are seeing less and less reason why they should progress is a really positive thing. And women in football do a fantastic job in, you know, in creating a, a network for, for women who are working in football to, to talk to each other regularly. They run courses, leadership courses, to show women that there's an opportunity to progress in the game. And they work with all the different footballing bodies to actually have a voice. And uh, again, the best thing, I think, for women in football would be that in 10, 15, 20 years' time, the organisation itself either doesn't need to exist because those opportunities are there and they're equal for everyone, or if it does exist, it exists for a different purpose. That would be a success, I think, for the organisation. In the Boardroom is partnered by Lion Trust, an independent asset manager that invests in a positive future. Lion Trust's sustainable investment team seeks companies that help create a cleaner, safer and healthier society, empowering and inspiring the wider community and seeks to generate attractive returns for investors. Right now, Lion Trust wants to give you a chance to win a £1,000 shopping voucher to spend at John Lewis. Just head to liontrust.co.uk forward slash The Athletic. Answer the question you could win. Now this competition is only open to UK residents and full terms and conditions are available on the Lion Trust website. Find out more at liontrust.co.uk forward slash The Athletic. You've had a long and varied career in football. You've 
were at the FA as director of marketing communications. You've had roles outside of football clubs. You were at Tottenham, as you mentioned, your own club uh, for a few years. You've been the MLS, Vancouver Whitecaps. So many different roles involving being an FA council member as well. That's a lot of perspective to have when we think about what happened with the European Super League proposal that came and went and was a massive story, but hasn't necessarily gone away. What are your thoughts on what's happened there? Well, one of the things that I've always loved about English football in particular, or European football generally, is the meritocracy, the the ability for, for any club in any given period to go from bottom to top and equally the jeopardy that exists in going from top to bottom and I've seen it with Brighton so for me the very notion of a of an ill-conceived and in my opinion sort of ill thought through idea of creating what was effectively a closed shop and and denying the opportunity of progress through merit frankly was everything that I would have disliked about the game just simply for me wasn't an acceptable idea it wasn't then it isn't now if it hasn't gone away, it should go away. For me, it's a nonsense idea. If you start creating closed shops, if you start denying clubs the opportunity to progress, if you start simply concentrating huge wealth in a very few number of clubs, then sooner or later, you're going to disintegrate that very fragile ecosystem that football exists through. The idea that five or six clubs would, would want to break away was was repugnant. And I think they misjudged the mood of, of the fans, not least their own. And I think they also perhaps misunderstood just how important the ecosystem of the game is. Any kind of massive disruption to it like that has far-reaching consequences for, for every club that, that sits within it. Did it come as a big shock to you or did you have an inkling this was rumbling along and was going to happen at some stage or was even imminent? I think there were there were rumblings of, of, of European breakaway leagues for as long as I can remember, to be honest. Um, I didn't take them seriously. I still can't quite get my head around the idea that 15, 16, 20 of the biggest clubs in Europe would compete in a league. Um, and for that league to sort of properly exist, some of those huge clubs would have to finish bottom in any given season. And I just can't get my head around the idea that Real Madrid or Manchester United would want to finish bottom of any league, whether it's a European Super League or not. And however wealthy it made those clubs, there's still the prestige and the, the honour of competing. And, and, you know, in a European Super League, by definition, some of the biggest clubs would have to finish in the bottom. And that seems a bit bizarre. But I think the strength of feeling from fans was the, was the thing that surprised me most. Not that they had the strength of feeling, but how quickly they mobilised their views and their thoughts and stopped it in its tracks. I mean, you know, no matter what the other 14 Premier League clubs thought or did, no matter what the government said or did, no matter what the royal family said or did, it was actually the fans that actually had the biggest and most significant voice. And I can remember turning up at Stamford Bridge on the, the Tuesday evening that we were due to play in a Premier League game 48 hours after the news had broken. And not only were the team, our team, struggling to get to the game because the roads were blocked with fans protesting, but I physically couldn't get into the stadium on foot because there were so many people protesting. And it really brought home to me just how much there was, you know, strength of feeling against the idea, against the notion. And also, you know, for fans of one of the clubs that would have been involved potentially, demonstrating so visibly and so vocally, literally on their own doorstep.
an edifying time for football and it wasn't a great thing to, to witness. But we've got to find a way to trust each other again. We've got to try and find a way to work each other, with each other again. And we've got to find a way to ensure that English football remains as, as solid as it has been for a lot more than a century now. And yeah, it's not perfect. We've got things that we need to fix and we've got things that are not quite right in terms of how the financial distributions work. But we've also got to be careful that we, we don't go too far on the basis of one failed European Super League breakaway attempt. We've got to make sure that we remain measured and calm and look at all aspects of the game with the same scrutiny that some people looked at that particular proposal. Fans and executives, probably such as yourself, of other clubs who weren't involved in the breakaway were really angry with those who had conspired undercover to make this happen or to try to make it happen. And you're talking about regaining the trust of those people. I can only imagine on a human level how angry those of you were with your colleagues who had secretly plotted. Just from a human point of view, what was that like, having to reconnect with those people? We felt let down, blindsided. We felt disrespected, I suppose. But again, stepping back, putting it into context and trying to look at it in a, in, a, in a balanced way, individuals who make significant investments in anything, whether it's a football club or any other business, will want to do what they think is right to maximise that investment and to generate the best possible return on that investment. And of course, if you're looking at it from a football perspective, and you can join a league where the biggest risk to that investment is the jeopardy of either not qualifying for the top European competition every year, or in the worst case, not being ever being relegated from the chances of earning the biggest money every year, then from a pure business perspective, it's probably not a crazy decision to take. But the problem is that football doesn't exist in that same economic environment that other businesses do. You know, we exist in a relatively fragile football ecosystem that requires us to look beyond just a simple return on our investments. You know, we've got responsibility to our community, the, the cities and towns and areas of the country that we serve and represent. We've got a responsibility to the rest of football to to try and at least look out for the rest of football, even if we don't always agree with the rest of football. We are where we are now. We've seen off the idea for, for now. I think if the European Super League does come back. I think it will come back in a very different format. I hope it doesn't come back because I think that the one thing that's very special and very precious about English football is the pyramid that we have. And certainly during my time in MLS, the one thing people wanted to talk about more often than not was how we managed to sustain 92 professional clubs and all the leagues below that, you know, playing in front of sometimes dozens of people or hundreds of people because they thought it was just incredible. And it is incredible. We should do everything possible to sustain it for as long as we possibly can. And my final topic to ask you about, Paul, is actually quite a meaty one. So I don't know how you're able to distill this down, but the, the recent fan-led review was very interesting. And we haven't had chance to hear your thoughts yet on that in terms of the flow of money from the top down to the lower levels and the idea of having an independent regulator. Could you sum up your thoughts on the fan-led review and which are the bits that perhaps you do and, and maybe don't agree with? Well, first of all, it's, it's 160-odd pages of, um, <laughs> of, of report and recommendations, so it's a lot to digest. And I, I've got to be honest, I, am, I have read it all the way through twice, and I'm still digesting parts of it. I think there are some parts of it that I wholly agree with. I think you know we've just touched on them with the idea of, of protecting 
the heritage of the game and you know the things that are really important to fans and that's the integrity of competitions and the opportunity to progress through merit and certainly team colours and where teams play and badges are really important to clubs and to, to their fans. So I, I think that, you know, Tracy Crouch has hit upon things there that, that are important in the overall context of the game. I think in terms of the finances, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about just how much money already flows from, from the top of the game to the bottom. And I think football's partly responsible for that. We budget things up under all kinds of different headings and banners and money flows this way and that way. And it's hugely complicated. Even if you work in the game, it's hugely complicated to fully understand you know, how the revenues are generated and where they ultimately go. But there is a huge amount of money that does flow down. So I'm not convinced at the moment that pushing more money down is necessarily going to make clubs at the lower levels more sustainable because, you know, in my experience, having operated at the lower levels, the more money we got, for example, from an FA Cup run or a League Cup run, the more money we invested in players because we were chasing that dream of progression to the Premier League. I think we've got to take a step back, look at Tracy Crouch's report in, in careful detail, analyse the recommendations one by one by one, make sure that we all fully understand what exactly the recommendations mean in, in practice. But we've also got to be very aware of any unintended consequences of some of those recommendations. And it's very easy, I think, to dismiss and, and rubbish a report of 160 pages quickly, because if you don't like some of it, it it's a natural thing to do. And, and then, of course, the danger is you then get accused of being defensive as, a, as an industry or defensive as a club or defensive as a league. But some very articulate points have been made already about the report, both ways, positive and negative. But now I think it's really important that, you know, having seen a report prepared in quite rapid time, that we now take the time to review its recommendations really carefully before rushing to change an industry that has worked pretty well for over 150 years. And, you know, we've got to make sure that whatever changes we do make are going to help sustain the industry for another 150 years. And you mentioned about how pushing more money down the leagues won't necessarily help clubs to be more sustainable. Do you just sense that if you give them more money, then they'll just pay more out in wages and it won't actually help the infrastructure of clubs, which is what the idea is? History shows us that that's what happens, Jackie, and, and we don't exonerate ourselves from that. You know, in every season we were in the championship and we were able to, for example, generate higher revenues from boosting our crowd or we got small windfalls from going further in the FA Cup than perhaps we'd budgeted or further in the League Cup than what we'd budgeted. The tendency wouldn't be to say, OK, that gives us an opportunity to reduce our losses. It, it, it was a tendency to say, OK, does that give us a bit more headroom in order to buy that extra player and push harder for promotion and maybe try and secure promotion faster? We were lucky in this club that we, you know, we always stuck to a business plan that kept us within financial fair play rules. We also made sure that at the same time we were investing in players, we were investing in infrastructure. We were also investing in our academy so that we could hopefully generate returns on, on the sale of players in the future, which in turn helped our sustainability. But not every club is fortunate enough to be able to do all those things at the same time. And, and the natural thing to want to do is to invest in your playing squad to get you to the highest level that you can as quickly as you can, because the value of being in the Premier League, for example, is, is far greater. We're all guilty of it. It's because we're all competitive and we all want the best for our clubs and we all want the best for the fans and the best for our communities. But unfortunately, sometimes pushing money further down doesn't necessarily translate into more sustainable business models. We have to look at our business model as a whole in order for us all to be more sustainable for the future. 
And is there also an element that particularly maybe the clubs in the lower half of the Premier League are thinking, hang on a minute, we're giving more money to effectively the championship clubs, never mind League One and League Two who might need it more, but to championship clubs to potentially replace us in the top flight. And that maybe doesn't seem fair to you. <laughs> you, you can't help um, but, but think a bit like that because that's the nature of the pyramid. And, you know, one of the beauties of the pyramid is, is the pyramid. You can go up and down. One of the downsides of the pyramid is there's always someone looking to replace you. So the, the, the notion of clubs perhaps in the Premier League who have less wealthy owners than some clubs in the Championship pushing more money to those clubs in order to help those clubs replace them. I mean, that's a bizarre notion. So it's complex. It's not easy. And of course, as fans, you know, when you're talking about fan-led reviews and, and fans are a huge stakeholder in our game, they're hugely important to what we do, regardless of live TV coverage, regardless of, of radio broadcast. You know, we want fans in the stadium, so their voice has to be heard. But we're all fans and very often fans want things faster than clubs can deliver. And fans will also not necessarily, and, and quite rightly, not worry about the, the longer term financial positions of clubs. They want to get that promotion or they want to win that league or they want to secure that cup victory above everything else. And sometimes, you know, we as, as, as those that have got responsibility for running the club, we don't just have to think of the here and now. We also have to think of the future generations that, that are going to come through to support the club. We are custodians. We are here for a point in time, a point in the club's history. And we've got to try and make some difficult judgments along the way as to, to when to invest. And striking the balance is really, really important. And, you know, again, I think we need to just take a step back and make sure that we are all on the same page and, and look at the perspective of the report. 21,000 fans responded to the report, but the report itself says there are 35 million fans in the country. Well, that's a lot of people that responded to the report, but it's still a very, very tiny percentage of those people that support the game. You know, the report spoke to 135 clubs, but there are tens of thousands of clubs in the country. So 135 clubs' opinions are really important, but again, it's a small percentage of the total number of clubs in the country. So we've just got to take a step back and make sure that we have properly consulted every single stakeholder that we possibly can. And if that means taking a bit more time to consider the content and to review certain areas of the report in more detail, that's what we should do. Paul, I could happily ask you questions for another hour or two. And that's just on the fan-led review. But you have a club to run, so I need to let you go and do that. But thank you so much for joining us on In the Boardroom. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Jackie. Thanks very much for the opportunity. Thanks to Paul Barber for speaking to us and thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed that and would like to hear more insight from those operating at senior levels in football, then do subscribe to the In the Boardroom podcast feed. There you'll find interviews with people such as Arsenal's head of women's football, Claire Wheatley, and Preeti Shetty, a non-executive member of the board at Brentford. Plus, if your podcast app gives you the option, then you may just like to leave us a nice review. In the Boardroom from The Athletic is presented by me, Jackie Oatley, and is produced by Steve Hankey. The Athletic. Lion Trust are giving you the chance to win a £1,000 shopping voucher to spend at John Lewis. All you need to do is visit liontrust.co.uk forward slash The Athletic and answer the question. This competition is only open to UK residents and full terms and conditions are available on the Lion Trust website. That's liontrust.co.uk forward slash The Athletic.